Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, I'm Nate Larkin, uh, here with another guest host this week. Uh, Chris Inman is back. Hey, Chris. Hey, Nate. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for stepping in with Aaron. Uh, sure. Uh, I know that you're thinking of praying for Aaron today, as yes, I am. Today sure. is the memorial service for his dad, who mm. died just last week. Uh, Aaron's been spending time with his mom uh, and sister uh, in uh, the Central Coast of California. We expect him back next week. Uh, awesome. Well, Chris, the reason I wanted to go ahead and get you on this is is that uh, some time ago now, it's been a few months ago, it's been back in May, I believe, I recorded along with uh, Aaron Schwind a conversation with... Who, uh, who, who uh, by the way, I have to put a plug, Aaron Schwind, an awesome contributor to the Samson Society. If you go on Facebook or any yeah. social media, she's the one creating all that awesome content. So she's definitely one to be celebrated. So I'm so glad you had her on that interview. Oh, man. Yeah. So Aaron, yeah, she is absolutely indispensable. So we've got we've got a pair of Aaron's. We've got A.A. Aaron, yes. who is my co-host on the Positive, yes. uh, on the Pirate Monk podcast. And we have E.R. Aaron, yes. married to Schwinn Daddy. And just kind of spinning plates, uh, plates and running the world from Albuquerque. Yeah. And she's sainted uh, just for that, just because she puts <laughs> up with Justin. And I, I just, like if, if there's no other reason than you're married to Justin Schwinn, I love her just for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and of course, uh, Aaron has been deeply involved in the Sarah Society. Yes. Uh, instrumental in its formation. Uh, she actually traveled with us to Italy last year to lead a, a Sarah Society weekend for Italian women. Awesome. Uh, she is the one who put us on to today's guest hmm. uh, and, and told me this woman's book was more helpful to her than any other one she has read. Uh, she, uh, anyway. Well, real so quick, it, before we get to that, Nate, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, You've got a big event coming up. I think you're, you're going to be uh, speaking at the Pure Desire Conference, I believe, here in just a few weeks. Is that correct? It's happening, yeah. Uh, the weekend of September 14th and 15th, or okay. 15th and 16th. Yeah, right in there. Uh, in uh, Now, it's going to be in Portland, Oregon, but you don't have to go to Portland to attend. Okay. Uh, okay. There are watch parties in, in host homes and other host venues around the country. Or uh, you can also just dial in on your own and attend virtually. Uh, if if there are any pirate monks or listeners to this podcast who can make it to Portland, I would dearly love to see you there. And uh, uh, I'm going to be there with Barb Steffens and uh, some other great speakers. It's an honor to be invited to speak at awesome. the Pure Desire National Summit. Uh, and the way to register, by the way, is to go to puredesire.org slash summit. Okay. Yeah that's, yeah, that's great. Well, it's going to be a great event. Um, uh, I think uh, Alan, what was Alan's last name? I want to say Rickman, but that's not it. He's the he's the uh, uh, Capstone Treatment Center in Arkansas mm -hmm. leader. Yeah, yeah. I did some training under him uh, 
a few a few years ago, and he was amazing to really listen to. Really broke down, especially when it comes to trauma and all those pieces around yeah. the addiction process. So I think you know you'll have a great time. You'll be a, you'll be amongst some really powerful people, and uh, anybody who checks that out is really going to benefit from it. Yeah, well, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, of course. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, uh, let's go ahead and listen to Michelle Mays, and okay. then I'd love to get your reaction. We can talk. Yes. Love to do uh, it. Yeah. Okay. Here we are, listeners. We'll be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. This episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast is sponsored by LifeWorks Counseling. Our good friends, Roan and Eva Hunter and their son, Roe, are not just members of the Samson Society, the Sarah Society. They are also trauma-informed, certified sex addiction therapists with a tremendous amount of experience. Well, they and their team of counselors and recovery coaches are based in Madison, Mississippi, but thanks to the internet, they're able to work with people who live almost anywhere. So to find out more about what LifeWorks Counseling can do for you as an individual or as a couple or as a family, or to register for one of their upcoming intensives, go to lifeworks.ms, lifeworks.ms. Welcome back to the Pyramid Podcast. Uh, our guest this week is a professional counselor and an expert in treating sexual betrayal and trauma. Now, she's also the author of the new book, The Betrayal Bind, How to Heal When the Person You Love the Most Has Hurt You the Most. Now, Michelle has created a, a new treatment model to address the devastating dilemma that betrayed partners face when their significant other is unsafe to connect to, yet connection is the key to healing. Our guest is Michelle Mays. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us and welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me be here today. Oh, and I'm so glad that Aaron Schwind is uh, with me today for this conversation because she knows the experience more intimately than I of uh, betrayal. I'm uh, on the other side of the table as the betrayer, uh, not of Aaron, but of my dear wife, Allie. And uh, we're now. 25 years from disclosure and grateful for the experience. So uh, I'm curious, what got you into this field? Did you start out in your uh, career as a therapist and a counselor already focused on uh, sexual betrayal or did you find your way there? No, it all kind of dovetailed for me. So mm -hmm. I was actually a poli sci undergrad and then oh, had no, really? Had, yeah, had no exposure to therapy in my family of origin, counseling field, that kind of thing. And so mm -hmm. I then had some friends in my 20s who were counselors and they said to me, you should look into this. I think this would be, you know, a good fit for you. And I was kind of looking for something that felt interesting and meaningful and held my attention and um, so I started reading and exploring and I, I, I thought, oh, this is like endlessly fascinating mm -hmm. and meaningful. And so I decided to go get my master's degree in counseling. And at that time I was married to someone and, uh, someone who is a sex addict who was dealing with sexual mm -hmm. addiction. 
And so all of that kind of dovetailed for me in terms of working through my own recovery process while in school, getting my master's degree, coming Mm. out the other side of that. Um, I divorced while I was uh, out in Seattle doing my schoolwork and all of that. And after that, and then went into private practice and started working with betrayed partners and then they started bringing their partners, the cheating mm-hmm. partners, in. And because I had really taken a look at my own compulsive relational patterns, I really understood both sides of it. I liked both sides of it. I'm a mm-hmm. systems thinker. I like to look at the whole system and work with the whole system. And so I started working with folks that are dealing with sexual betrayal and trauma and relationship issues. And that's been my focus ever since. Okay, uh, and and this is really kind of culminated uh, in the in the formation of a treatment model, mm-hmm. a, a new treatment model. I don't know whether it's too early in the conversation to start walking into the treatment model, but yeah. uh, I, I'm 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 curious about what you have found to be efficacious as you're working with. Is it is uh, is the betraying partner typically the male? Uh, typically not, but not always. I mean, it's, uh-huh. it's a mix, you know, it's definitely a mixed bag. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So you got two hurt people. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it fair to say that typically one is cast entirely as the villain when they first walk into the room? It depends on the people. It depends on the oh, couple. Really? I think one person is definitely the person who has, uh, betrayed, been the betraying mm. partner or cheated within mm. the relationship is definitely seen as the person who's caused the harm. Right. And uh-huh. the person who has done the damage. Right. I don't think they're always assigned villain status. Sometimes they are. It uh-huh. depends on the person, you know, and how the right. person kind of yeah. holds what's happened to them. But they are mm-hmm. definitely seen as the problem. I might put it that yeah. way. That, that what they've done has created this enormous crisis in the relationship. Right. right. Okay. Good, good, good. So uh, where do we start when that couple walks through your door? Oh, gosh. Well, when folks are walking through the door and they're dealing with all of that, I think um, the first thing we're doing is we're trying to get a feel for like, what what is this? Mm-hmm. Because cheating comes in many different forms, right? So it can mm-hmm. be uh, an affair. It can be a one isolated infidelity instance of infidelity. It can be... Mm-hmm. Um, pornography, a pornography Mm. addiction, or Mm -hmm. it can be a sex addiction that goes back 30 years and includes the whole circus full of behaviors, right? And so it just depends on what it looks like. So often we're trying to get a feel for what are we doing because treatment looks different if it's Mm -hmm. an addiction versus isolated infidelity. And we're trying to get a feel for where is this couple at in the process of really... um, knowing what's going on because most of the time when discovery happens and discovery is when the cheating is discovered right right you're usually you're only usually only discovering a part of it and a piece of it Mm -hmm. and so part of the assessment is how where are we in this process of things coming to light Mm -hmm. how defended and how many secrets are still being kept Mm -hmm. where's the betrayed partner in terms of their tolerance for being in the new reality they're in you know, you're doing a lot of assessing of what's happening for them and where they're at in the process. Right. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, and I think it's it was certainly my experience, and I think it's not unusual for sex partners or, or, or for marriage partners who've been discovered to uh, cop to to admit to what's been discovered. Mm-hmm. And, yes. <laughs> and the yes. instinct is to just you know slowly leak out the rest of it uh, for fear of blowing up the whole relationship. Somehow there's this feeling if 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 she doesn't know more, then we'll be okay. It's I don't think it's an accurate assessment, but uh, that's yeah, no, yeah. it's definitely not an accurate assessment. But there is, I think, you know, the self preservation instincts are very strong in terms right. of it's going to negatively impact me. Like we're going to mm-hmm. have an incredible crisis if they find out the whole enchilada here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to feel shame. Right. And I'm trying to avoid shame. I don't want to run into that. So I'm trying to protect against that. Mm-hmm. I'm also now this little part that my partner does know. Mm-hmm. I am seeing the level of devastation that that has caused. And I do right. not want to cause more. Right. And I'm going to cause even more. So I'm also trying to avoid that. So there's an enormous amount of avoidance of pain, avoidance of chaos, avoidance of suffering, avoidance Mm -hmm. of shame going on for the cheating partner. The other piece that's going on for the cheating partner in that dynamic is that usually when discovery happens, the cheating partner is caught between competing attachments. Mm-hmm. Because they are attached to their romantic partner, right? They're mm-hmm. attached to their spouse, their girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. But they are also attached to the affair partner or the mm-hmm. addiction mm-hmm. or the sexually compulsive behavior, whatever that right. is. Sure. So they're right. also caught between competing attachments. Mm-hmm. And most of the time when people are caught in competing attachments, they try to keep both. The first instinct is I'm going to actually try to keep both of these. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Let me see how I can manage this and do that. Yeah. yeah. So that's also part of it. Uh, uh, What what comes up in you, Aaron, uh, when, when Michelle describes this situation? I mean, I completely understand and relate to what she was saying. Um, I, I love the approach of understanding this from attachment perspective. I think that mm-hmm. helps explain so many things for me as a betrayed partner, that dynamic of wanting to um, seek comfort from him, mm-hmm. but also wanting to like punch the living lights out of him all within a three second span. Yes. And yes. then that, that, that uh, bind within him as well as the attachment to me wanting to give me comfort, but then in the pain of seeing what I'm going through, wanting to seek that attachment with Mm -hmm. uh, this other uh, coping mechanism that he has established and had for most of his life. Um, I really loved that you brought that perspective um, to this relationship dynamic that's happening. Um, and I'm really curious, mm-hmm. Michelle, how did you come about that? How did you take these two understandings of attachment styles and betrayal trauma, sex addiction, and and marry the two that seems so natural, but then because it's so natural, I'm like, why wasn't this done earlier? <laughs> why didn't we think about this? You know, I think, I don't even know when I was first exposed to attachment theory, but I think 
immediately, it just made so much sense to me in terms of understanding how we first bonded with our parents and our caregivers, sets Mm -hmm. us up for how we bond in all our future relationships and how we perceive ourselves ourselves and others in all our relationships. And so that just made a ton of sense to me. And then as I was working with trauma and working with family of origin trauma and reading betrayal trauma theory, which really started looking, uh, Jennifer Freight is the founder of betrayal trauma theory. And she started by looking at childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And as you look at that, there is a very specific dilemma that happens. And this is also in the attachment theory literature, when your primary attachment figure, which for children is your parent or a caregiver, Mm -hmm. but in adulthood is our romantic partner, when your primary attachment figure, who is the person that you turn to for comfort, solace, companionship, play, fun, you're doing life together, when that person becomes dangerous mm-hmm. and they now become a source of threat or danger for you, that creates a very specific type of dilemma for us mm-hmm. inside of us. And you see that in the attachment research, that's actually the basis of the uh, fourth attachment style of fearful avoidant disorganized attachment, um, where you're kind of going all over the place. You want to connect, you want to disconnect, you you don't, you're disorganized in your approaches Mm -hmm. and attempts, right? So I just got really interested in looking at that. And then I saw that with betrayed partners. I saw that pattern. I saw that Everything really comes down to attachment. Everything comes down to relational, our relational capacity, mm-hmm. you know? And I got really interested in it and just started reading and exploring and researching and thinking through how does this apply to this and how do we create a model to really look at it and understand it. Mm. That's 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 really helpful. For our listeners who perhaps don't have, or maybe they've forgotten kind of a rudimentary understanding of attachment theory and attachment mm-hmm. styles, can you thumbnail for us the four yeah. basic a- attachment uh, styles? Is that, mm-hmm. is that the right terminology, attachment style? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I'm fascinated yeah. by the fact that you have a, a nailed betrayal trauma to the fourth one, because I've never known exactly what to do with the fourth one. It just seems nebulous. Now it's starting to make sense. So go ahead. Okay. So the first thing to understand about your attachment style is that it's made up of two things. It has to do with how you perceive others. So for example, if you had a childhood where your parents and caregivers were dependable, they were consistent, they were attuned to you, they met your needs on a regular basis, they mirrored back to you who you were appropriately, Mm -hmm. then what you grow up with is a sense that the world is safe and predictable Mm -hmm. and other people are going to be there for me reliably when I reach for them. Mm -hmm. So your assumption is one of a positive response from others. The other part of our attachment style is our self-perception, how we perceive ourselves to be. So we're raised in a family, like I just described, our belief about ourselves is going to be, I am worthy of connection. Mm -hmm. I'm worthy of getting my needs met. I'm worthy of being responded to. I have worth and value that warrants that I will get my needs met. Now, if you are in a family where you don't get your needs met consistently, there's abuse, there's neglect, there's abandonment, et cetera, then what happens to us is we actually start to see the world as unpredictable and dangerous and Mm -hmm. that other people cannot be relied on. 
and that other people might not be there for us consistently. And then the belief about ourselves turns into, and I'm not worthy of connection, of reliable Mm -hmm. love, of reliably getting my needs met. I am not worthy of that. So our attachment style impacts both those things. And it comes, we develop what's called an attachment style. So the first scenario that I just gave, somebody who's assuming people are going to be there for me and I'm I have worth and value, that's somebody who's securely attached. We call that secure attachment. Mm-hmm. And it's a secure relational attachment. So remember that attachment is relational between you and another person, right? Mm-hmm. So second of all, a second attachment style is we have what a big bucket that's called insecure attachment. And there's two forms of insecure attachment. Mm-hmm. One is somebody who is more anxiously attached. I use very simple language when I'm talking about attachment styles. You can go out and Google and find all kinds of different names, but I feel like sometimes it's easy to just keep it really simple. So anxious attachment is when I feel very anxious about the fact that people will not be there for me. And so I do a lot of pursuing in my relationships. I try to get people to be responsive because I feel like they will not be. I feel doubtful about them. And this has to do with my childhood. And I also feel doubtful about my worth and value in getting my needs met and getting people to respond to me. The third type of insecure attachment is going to be avoidant attachment. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, your second type of insecure attachment is going to be avoidant attachment. And this is somebody who says, actually, the safest thing for me to do is to not even know that I have needs. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to kind of suppress my innate need for connection. I'm going to pull the plug out of the outlet and not really know about it. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I actually feel pretty good about myself because I don't really need anything. Mm -hmm. So they kind of, they can have a little bit of an elevated sense of self, people who are avoidant. Okay. Mm -hmm. The fourth attachment style is that disorganized attachment. And that is when you're using both coping, all the coping strategies. You're both trying to pursue and you're trying to ignore that you have needs. You're approaching, you're withdrawing, you're you're all over the place with all yep. of the strategies. And for betrayed partners, regardless of what your attachment style was prior to betrayal, mm-hmm. and I've worked with betrayed partners that are all of the things, mm-hmm. what happens when you experience betrayal because you are experiencing danger at the hands of your most significant other is that it plunges your system into disorganization. Mm -hmm. So you will feel and look like you are disorganized in your attachment Mm -hmm. strategies and coping strategies because of the fact that your person in the world that you depend on and would normally reach for is now dangerous and a threat. Mm. When you say you feel and look disorganized, Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you as a therapist, what are you watching for? Or what do you, uh, uh, you're an empath, so you're feeling stuff. Mm-hmm. You're also observant. You're, mm-hmm. uh, what are kind of the signs that this person is now kind of in this liminal space of disorganized attachment? Uh, and then uh, do you make an assessment at that point? Uh, are you trying to get them back to their original attachment style? What's going on? No. No, uh-uh. no. I think at the at- I'm always trying to normalize everything for my clients. Okay. Okay. I want them to know that what's happening to them is normal. Ah. And what what is happening to them is a bodily-based response to trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So 
what's happening for them after betrayal is that normally in our lives, let me just say this, before betrayal happens, normally the way that our threat response system and our attachment systems operate, they sync up really well together. Mm-hmm. So we have something stressful happen with the kids and we pick up the phone and we text our partner or we call our partner, right? Mm-hmm. So something lights up our threat system. We reach for connection to our partner. Our attachment system says reach for them mm-hmm. when we feel stress. And that's how they sync up and work well together. Gotcha. When betrayal happens, these two systems, our threat response system and our attachment system come into conflict. Oh. And they are now in giving us gotcha. opposing safety imperatives. That's what I call it. Call it. Mm-hmm. And our threat response system is saying, hey, that person, your person in the world, they're now dangerous. Mm-hmm. They've caused you inordinate pain and inordinate harm and damage. And you need to fight, flight, or, free, or freeze. You need to somehow contain this danger. Our attachment system mm-hmm. is saying, you're in the worst pain of your life, reach for comfort, reach to them for comfort. Mm -hmm. So now these two systems are telling us to do two different things, go toward them and go away from them all at the same time. And so you see betrayed partners bouncing through, I love you, I hate you, I want to spend time with you, don't ever talk to me again. I would like you to move out of the house, actually, no, you can stay. I would like Mm -hmm. to file for divorce, no, actually, I've reconsidered. (laughs) Right, Mm -hmm. They're bouncing through all of these states because of how their bodily-based systems are responding to this dilemma, this bind of my primary attachment figure is now dangerous. And that's what looks disorganized, Mm -hmm. but is actually incredibly normal. And you're actually responding exactly the way you're wired to respond to this type of threat. Go ahead. It's so nice to hear. Um, <laughs> you, you do feel like you're going crazy. Like, why do yes. I want to have a hug or seek comfort from the guy who just caused all this pain? Um, so I'm so glad you put words to it and normalizing an experience and explained why. Because um, mm-hmm. it helps you not feel so crazy. Yeah, I'm- just naming it is regulating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I yeah. really yeah. wish that you had been around and written this book 25 years ago uh, because it would have helped me, first of all. Mm-hmm. I was confused yeah. as hell mm-hmm. by Allie's responses. Mm-hmm. Come here, go away. I love you, I hate you. Move out, stay in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I And because I didn't recognize that it was normal, I tended to gyrate between optimism and despair Mm -hmm. Uh, depending on how she was responding or not responding today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say it's enormously helpful if you as the cheating partner understand this dynamic as well. Like you said, it makes, it helps you go, okay, this is normal. Mm -hmm. And my partner is going to be in different places at different times as she's responding to what's happening inside her body. Yeah. Is she more connected to the fact that I'm dangerous right now? Or is she more connected to the fact that I'm her partner right now? Mm-hmm. I, and she's going to be in different places based on that. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would say that I think is helpful is cheating partners have their own version of attachment ambivalence. And this is not in the book. I didn't write about this in the book. 
But Ooh, they have their own. Give us an extra. Okay. There's an extra. I'm ready. Okay. They have their own version of this, right? Okay. Because number one, they've got competing attachments. Mm-hmm. So they've got the ambivalence of I'm attached to my partner and I want to help her with her pain. And I also am attached to my addiction or my acting out or my affair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I have to figure out what I'm going to do there. And th- there comes a point where they must choose. Yep. And they have to get to that point and figure that out and sort that through. And that's a big process for most folks who are dealing with cheating. So that's right. one form of their own attachment ambivalence. Mm-hmm. Another form of attachment ambivalence in a place that they're caught is that they are simultaneously the problem and the solution. Mm-hmm. And that is very difficult for them. Because in the same way, they are the primary attachment figure and they are also the one who's caused the caused the pain. Mm-hmm. They are the problem because they have caused all the pain and damage in the relationship. Right. Sure. But if healing is going to happen, they have to be an enormous part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And so somehow they have to sort through inside of themselves, how do I do both of these pieces? Like, how do I take accountability and responsibility for the part that has caused the harm? And then how do I really step into being part of the solution? Yeah. I am both I am both at the exact same time and for them sometimes they're acting like they're the problem some more and sometimes they're acting like they're the solution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. also bouncing around especially early on in the process because of their competing attachments. Sometimes they're right. doing one, sometimes they're doing the other. So it's very messy. I always say that the beginning of recovery is an absolute rodeo <laughs> and everybody yeah. is in the yeah. rodeo together, you know. Yeah. Well, Michelle, um, we have a mixed audience. Uh, I think most of our audience will be will be on the betrayer side of the table, but we also have partners who listen. Uh, selfishly, I'm listening for everything I can glean from you about my side of the table. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I want to bounce off you for your uh, assessment reflection, some of the advice that I got early in recovery. Mm-hmm. And my sense is it was helpful and it helped us navigate through, but maybe there was a better way to say it. Okay. So I was told a few things. First of all, don't push for early forgiveness. I know you want your wife to forgive you, but forgiveness can't be rushed and and she can't forgive what she can't feel. Your job is to let her be as angry as she needs to be for as long as she needs to be angry. How does that so, sound? So here's how I would reframe it. Okay. I would say that if you are in a relationship with, with a a, betra- a betrayed partner, if you're in a relationship mm-hmm. where you have uh, betrayed your partner's trust, if there's sexual betrayal, mm-hmm. and you guys are staying together and trying to work on the relationship, yeah, the fact that your partner is still waking up every morning and saying, "I'm here and I'm gonna, I'm willing to work on it and see if we can repair it," is an act of forgiveness. Uh, that that betrayed partner is actually embodying yeah. and living forgiveness. Yes. And work in their way to the place where for, for forgiveness will at some point be more complete. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful and very helpful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh okay. I mean, I feel better already. That's you know, I'm gonna start <laughs> I'm gonna start saying that. guys and that's exactly what my wife did i mean uh, yeah i slept in a closet but uh for a couple of years but i was in my own house and she uh, and she wasn't attacking me 
uh, and we did have moments of real closeness uh, that, that I, you know, that I got hope from. Uh, now, let me ask you about something else. Uh, I got a lot of help from uh, a support group uh, that I met with on a daily basis and other people that I was talking to. How important, uh, how helpful is it for your clients to be getting support between sessions from other folks? And what what does, so, it, yeah. what does healthy support look like? Or, or you know, so, what, what's... If I'm... If I'm working with somebody who's dealing with a sexual addiction, porn or right. sex addiction of some sort, right. compulsive right. sexual behavior, then I want them doing three things. I want them in therapy every week mm-hmm. where they're doing the deep dive work. I want them right. in a 12-step program okay, so that they are working, having a sponsor walk them through the 12 steps. Okay, And then I want them in a group therapy group mm-hmm. with other men and a very good therapist. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing in group therapy is they are practicing the new relational behaviors. Mm-hmm. They are practicing learning how to feel their feelings or practicing learning what to do with feelings that are coming up that they're no longer medicating through the addictive right. behavior. They're right. practicing learning how to communicate about those feelings, how to ask other people good questions, give feedback in a good way. It's a, it's a laboratory group therapy yes. to me should be a laboratory for them learning these new skills that they then take back into all their other relationships, including their primary relationship. So I want them doing all three things. Mm-hmm. Very good. And, and, and what about the betrayed partner? I mean, my wife felt so alone. She was, uh, because I had been so bright and shiny and she worked very hard to polish my image. She'd been covering my ass for years uh, and mm-hmm. just just telling the story that she was married to the greatest guy in the world. And uh, she didn't want to ruin me. She was very alone until mm-hmm. and she did not even when I lost enough shame that I started sharing my story, telling people, finding healing that way, started serving. She really didn't want me to get specific about the nature of my addiction uh, for that same kind of shame bound reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she was very alone. Uh, what what kind of help should the betrayed partner be and support? Should the betrayed mm-hmm. partner ideally be seeking between sessions with you? I honestly want the betrayed partner doing the same things. I want them in therapy every week, doing a deep dive. Mm-hmm. If they can access a good 12-step program, because there are good mm-hmm. 12-step programs out there for betrayed partners. Um, if they can access a good meeting, not all the great meetings are awesome, but Mm-hmm. I want them doing that. And then I want them in group therapy where they are walking with a group of people who get to know them very, very well. And they're walking with the same people. I don't, I'm not a big fan of these drop-in groups that we now have in the world. Mm-hmm. I think they're helpful like for the first two months of recovery while you're getting your bearings. But after that, yeah. you need to get in a group with the same people, therapist-led, where you are coach-led, one of the two where you guys are all doing it together and you're doing the work together and you're giving each other the courage. You're helping work through the fear and the powerlessness and the shame that often keeps betrayed partners very stuck. You need support to do that. You need other people who are in the same 
in the same process with you and you're borrowing courage from one another and all of that kind of thing. And you're also, it's a laboratory for you. You're also using all of your new skills and tools in group and then taking them back to their relationship. So I want the betrayed partner doing the same kind of stuff. Beautiful. Well, I I think that it's, I mean, it just strikes me as absolutely beautiful the way uh, your pain, your loss, uh, you know, the trauma that you endured and the way you learned and survived and grew from it, the way that you are now giving it away. And you found you you found new insights through the experience that you're now sharing with the world. It's a it is a wonderful thing. I've benefited a great deal from our short conversation. Uh, before yeah. I wrap here, come on, Aaron. What do you what yeah. do you want to what do you want to ask uh, Michelle or say to her? Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, so we we covered. In your in your new book, The Betrayal Bind, you say that there are three core injuries mm-hmm. that betrayed partners experience. Yeah. And we, we've talked about one of them, an attachment injury. Um, I'm wondering um, if you can just give a brief uh, detail of the other two injuries that occurred mm-hmm. um, on the heels of betrayal. Yes, absolutely. So we've talked, and I just want to say, we've talked about a piece of the attachment injury. There's actually more to that. But, the, but it is about the damage to the bond in the relationship. The second injury is an emotional and psychological injury. And this has to do with the damage to the partner's ability to perceive reality accurately and have any sense of trust as a result of being lied to and gaslighted mm-hmm. by the betraying partner. Mm-hmm. So... This, and again, within each injury, there's a whole bunch of different pieces that get explored, but that's the overarching idea of the injury is how it damages your own ability to perceive reality accurately, own your reality, and be an awareness in your own reality. The third injury is the sexual injury, and this has to do with how the partners, the betrayed partner's sexuality is impacted by the breaking of the sexual agreements within the relationship. So this has to do with the impact to a person's sense of their own sexuality, their sense of value, worth, desirability. It affects libido. It affects Mm -hmm. uh, sexual self-confidence. It affects all kinds of different things. Many betrayed partners have tolerated enormous amounts of uh, sexual coercion and abuse as Mm -hmm. part of things. Not all have, but some have really interesting and harrowing stories. And so all of that can be part of the sexual injury that has to be looked at and healed um, as part of the journey of healing that partners go through. Wow. Wow. You you mentioned also um, when we were talking about the briefly, the attachment injury, Mm -hmm. that there's a bind on both sides. Both partners have a bind. Would you say that that's true also in the sexual injury and the emotional psychological injury that there are also binds on both sides? I think so because the dynamic that we're in is I always say betrayal is a relational problem and it requires a relational solution. And part of the bind that we're in is in this primary relationship where we are each other's person in the world. There's now been enormous harm and we have to both figure out our role in repairing that if we want to repair it and move forward. And so I think you could take each injury and look at it from the perspective of 
how things are impacting the cheating partner and how they've impacted the betrayed partner. There's elements to both. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'm a little envious of Erin. She's already read the book. I'm I'm playing catch up. I'm ordering it as soon as this interview ends. Oh, there it is. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> well loved. Uh, okay. So the title of the book again is The Betrayal Bind, How to Heal When the Person You Love Most Has Hurt You the Most. The author is Michelle Mays. Thank you, Michelle, for taking the time to talk with us today. This has been a very valuable, very enlightening conversation. Yeah, thank you. It's been good to be here. All right. Listeners, stay with us. We'll return in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, Chris, what'd you think? Oh my gosh, that was an amazing interview. I love what Michelle had to say and just love the, you know, the clarity that she brought to this piece of betrayal trauma because so many times, and I know this, it's, it's in your story, Nate, it's in my story, uh, you know, that the struggle is not only just being uh, on, on your own recovery journey, but how do you mm -hmm. help your spouse? How do you understand what they're going through and really give some clarity and have some patience with their process. Because like Michelle described, I mean, just so much chaos and and struggle to find some footing after yeah. that disclosure of infidelity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, even as she was describing it, I could, I, you know, I remember Allie saying, you know, early on uh, in the in our process, when she was just in such pain and the, and the news was so fresh and so mm -hmm. raw, mm -hmm. I remember her looking at me and saying, you have no idea how I feel. Wow. Right? Yeah. And, and I think that's exactly what she was saying. And she, she didn't know how she felt. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, but we had always been friends. Mm. We'd always been friends. Mm. And uh, I didn't get at that point. I don't, looking back, I don't think I fully understood that it was as much the betrayal of the friendship. Yes. And the way it, you know, I'm glad that Aaron was present in the conversation to ask the follow-up questions at the end when I was done, right. because I was right. so full after we got done talking about attachment styles. Right? Stuck in the theory, right? You're all yeah, up yeah, in your yeah, yeah. on that oh, yeah. one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but but Aaron talking about the other areas of damage that are caused for mm. the partner by the betrayal, mm -hmm. including, you know, all this now uncertainty and self-doubt because everything is up for re-examination. Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. Everything from my desirability to uh, the credibility of the person sure. and my own credulity. How yep. much can I trust my own perceptions? How how much of my memory is false? Uh, oh man, Allie's world was thrown because I'd been such a good performer and such a good liar, right. and because she had bought in so fully. Yep, it was absolutely devastating for Allie when she found yeah. out what I'd been doing. And, yeah. and I, th I think as, as I just hear you talking about it and, you know, resonate from my own story, I mean, our story is a little different. You know, we spent a long season in that just emotionally disconnected space where Brooke, my wife, 
uh, and I just were going through the motions. And many many guys may may resonate with this. We were just roommates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we were we were raising kids and we were doing life, but emotionally there was nothing there. And I love how you talked about. I've heard this before that you know the thing that connected you and Allie was playing cards at the pub. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. The thing for for Brooke and I that really helped it was, you know, what do you have in common? And, of course, we live down the Gulf Coast. There's a lot of great places to eat. If you're in Mobile, Mm -hmm. Alabama, it's just eating. That's all you do is just eat a bunch (laughs) of places. So we would do date night and just go try a new restaurant. And it was a year of really rebuilding that. And I think what what, uh, Aaron was really talking about and how do I regain my footing, how does my spouse regain her footing in a relationship it's just that those simple things of finding a simple place of connection. Do I do I even like this person? And frankly, mm-hmm. the two people may decide I can't trust or like this person, which is sad. But it's part of the healing journey as individuals to say, yeah, yeah. what does it take for me to begin to just be a friend, to just yeah. be in my own skin? And I think Michelle painted a great picture to move out of that disorganized attachment, which means everything is chaotic. I don't know what to expect into some version of a secure attachment to myself and to my partner. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I also appreciated her emphasis uh, on the fact that both partners should be engaged in work outside of the formal therapy session. Yes. Yes. Right. Uh, including what she termed laboratory work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love of, that idea. Yeah, yeah sure, I mean, sure. I'm a big believer in that, yeah. I'll, I'll bring with a therapist or a coach. Now, uh, we have not really instituted group coaching as much of a, a, a recommended process here at the Samson Society so far, but I can see it going that way. I do see she, of course, Michelle, to my knowledge, has never been to a Samson meeting. Uh, but what I have witnessed and benefited from, participated in, in Samson meetings, uh, uh, it sounds very, very much like what she's describing in group therapy. And I've done group therapy as well. Yeah. If I'm with the same guys mm-hmm. week after week after week and yep. they get to know me, yep, right? Yep. And this is the safe place for me now to start to... Uh, feel what I feel, say what I feel, right? Test it. Right, right. Uh, There's a lot of growth that comes within that community. Yeah. Well, and and I think um, I've experienced that too, Nate, because good recovery is good recovery. And when, when, when we get away from this idea that fixing the marriage is the ultimate goal, I, I love a great marriage, but I know now my marriage to my wife is healthy because we've both done our own work. Yeah, and we've yeah, both found yeah. those fate, safe people, and and I'll say just just uh, you know my own process that I go through is is continuing to tell my own story. I, I did one this last week with six guys uh, that live here in Mobile, and mm-hmm. we we've done life together for three years, and we do the you know surfacey kind of topical study stuff for a while, but once a year we do that deep dive, and because I've got that relationship with these guys, I can be. I mean, I was brutally vulnerable about an experience mm-hmm. in my my own acting out that I felt a lot of shame about, mm-hmm. and and just the opportunity to do what Michelle was talking about, do that group processing of the stuff that's still here. I don't think that's ever gonna stop this side of heaven. I'm always gonna mm-hmm. need safe people to continue to 
take my emotions to and have them hold them and reflect back to me what they hear. I mean, that's just, that's just being a healthy person. I think, especially one that's been so traumatized as we are growing up and learning these coping behaviors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it is true. I mean, the die was cast in childhood. That's where, that's where our attachment style was formed. That's where, the story that we began to tell ourselves to, in order to make sense of our experience, that's where the story began. Now, that story requires some revision, but we can't even begin to revise it until we start to tell it, right? No, exactly. And, and we yeah. can't even begin, you know, there's a great quote that, that we all come into the world looking for someone looking for us. And so right. many times in our stories, there wasn't anyone looking for us in the way we needed. And so we've right. got to find people that can be there with us. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's a therapist. Sometimes it's a group. Uh, sometimes it's through story work. Sometimes it's through psychodrama. Sometimes it's through uh, uh, in, uh, intensive work. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to the folks that we know doing intensives here with Samson, because yeah. that's great trauma work because you yeah. get to be with those people that yeah. you've always wanted to be with. And it really does bring the healing that you've wanted your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, you and I, I let's reserve some campfire time oh, uh, yes. the first weekend in November when yes. we're down in Texas. Yes. November oh. 3rd through the 5th. Okay. If you haven't signed up. It's uh, it's going fast. I had two guys from Mobile sign up this week. So we're trying to bring 10 guys from the Mobile area. Excited okay. about that. But I, I think, you know, we're really, really going to be able to sit down and enjoy each other's company face-to-face. It's going to be a great part of the weekend. Yep, yep. That's the Samson Summit, first weekend yep. in November at uh, Sky Ranch uh, outside of uh, Tyler, Texas. So, uh, yep. Let's do well, it. Chris, thanks so much for uh, stepping in so that we can get this important interview out on the air. I feel bad that we let it linger for a long time. I had some technical difficulties is the problem. Sure. Uh, but but we, we, uh, we rescued the file, and now we're going to be able to share it with the world. Hooray! We did it! <laughs> we did it! <laughs> All right. Uh, That's it for this episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Chris. And we are your pal on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.